What up, church? It is a joy to get to be here with you this morning. Lydia, thank you so much for sharing your slice. Uh, it is a battle to believe what God says is true about us, right? Like there are so many lies that we're bombarded with throughout our day and our week, and it is a battle to choose to believe in what the Lord says about us. And so thank you for battling, Lydia. Thank you for sharing your slice with us, and thank you for just testifying that our God is speaking to us, and he wants us to know who we are. He wants to know the truth. He wants us to know the truth. And so, church, I wanted to share with you guys uh, a milestone that I was pretty excited about this past year. So uh, in November of 2018, I started a plan to read the Bible in one year. And now, two years and two months later, I have finally finished the Bible in a year plan. I know I, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. I, uh, I missed the one-year mark by about 60 weeks, I counted, which I thought, you know what, better late than never. But it had been a while since I'd done a Bible in a year plan. In fact, last time I'd done it was an undergrad. In an undergrad, back then I led uh, Young Life, and if you don't know what Young Life is, it's basically high school ministry, and I'd buy a Bible, and I'd make it my goal to read it, and as I read it, I would write notes and questions and doubts and prayers and all these things that were going on in my heart, and as I did that, I would pray that I would meet someone who was spiritually seeking or someone who had recently become a Christian, and at some point, I would give them this Bible. With all these written prayers and questions and doubts, my hope in doing that was that whoever I was giving this Bible to, they would catch a vision for God's word. They would see that it is alive and active, and hopefully it would spur them on to submit their entire life under God's authority also. And whenever I did this, I really struggled to know what to do with the Old Testament. You know, you have these classic stories of Noah and Moses and David and Goliath, but then you have these other parts that can seemingly feel dry or repetitive or unlike what I perceived God to be like from the New Testament. And so I'd read these long lists of names and numbers, and I'd read these retellings of awful things that happened, and it was hard for me to get a sense of what is God doing here? And so as I did the reading plan this time around, I still came across challenging and confusing moments. But as a whole, I walked away seeing more clearly than ever before what the Bible is. It's not meant to be a history book that we study and dissect. It's not to be a prescriptive roadmap for our life. Instead, the Bible is telling one unified story from beginning to end. And that story reveals who God is, how he has authority over everything, and what our role is in seeking a relationship with him and advancing his kingdom. And as I read the Bible this time around, I saw that meta-narrative laced through each aspect of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not a different God in one part and a different God in the second part. It's the same God. And so it excites me to share that as a church, we are starting an Old Testament sermon series called Kings. We're going to be taking the next five weeks to touch on a few of the Old Testament kings of Israel. And our hope in doing this sermon series is twofold. One is that we'd grow in understanding how the period of kings fits into this greater meta-narrative of the Bible. And two is that we would begin to see how we're not so different from these people that lived thousands of years ago. Now, before we explore kings, we need some context for what has led us up to this moment. 
So we're going to do a quick, and I, I want to emphasize quick, a quick recap of Genesis to Kings. I timed myself. It took me around like three to four minutes, so don't worry. Genesis, God creates humans, and it says this in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and livestock and wild animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So right away, humans are given a unique purpose. We are God's image bearers. And that word means more than just physically reflecting attributes of God. It means that we belong to God. And we're made for a unique relationship with God. And we have this distinct privilege, unlike anything else in creation, to reflect who God is. And when this passage says that we're made in God's image so that we may rule over creation, who else rules over something besides a king? Thus, from the very beginning, we see that God is king over all of creation, and we have a special relationship with this king. But from Genesis through today, humanity repeatedly rejects how our king created us to care for his kingdom. Instead, we often elevate our own agendas over God's kingdom. And we see this human propensity all throughout the Bible. And the essence of this propensity is what the Bible calls sin. And thus, we see a circular pattern emerge that can be see all, seen all throughout Scripture. God gives people an opportunity to know him and reflect him. The people commit to do that and then fail miserably. But God in his mercy makes a way for people to know him and reflect him once again. It starts with Adam and Eve, and they turn away from God, and then sin wreaks havoc on the earth. So God starts things over with a massive flood, and God's people afterwards commit to follow him. But God's people live even worse than they did before until they're taken as slaves by Egypt. And then God leads them out of slavery through Moses, and then the people again commit to follow God until they distrust and disobey him and wander aimlessly in the desert for 40 years. And this cycle happens all through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but by the end of Deuteronomy, we seem to hit a turning point. God's people are about to exit the desert and enter into this land that God promised to give them, and Moses is on his deathbed. And there he shares these words about God in Deuteronomy 33. He says, yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became the king in Jeshurun. And Jeshurun is this poetic name for Israel that's used in the Old Testament. And so as Israel prepares to enter the promised land, it's like they hit the reset button. They remember God is their king and recommit to follow him. And so for most of the book of Joshua, Israel actually follows the Lord. But after Joshua comes the book of Judges, and it is a period of moral chaos. God's people are turning away from him and fighting each other, and it gets so bad, the book ends with this phrase that is repeated all throughout the book of Judges. It says this in Judges 21, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. 
And so that's the big picture from Genesis to the doorstep of the kings of Israel. God's people are a mess, and they are looking to be led by other people and other things besides God, which takes us to the book of Samuel. And Samuel is named after the last good judge of Israel. Samuel was well-respected. He faithfully exhorted the people to follow the Lord. But when his sons don't carry out his legacy, here's what happens next. 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 9. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they weren't like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are old. And that's probably not the best way to start a conversation with someone. You are old and your sons aren't like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. And I love the dichotomy that's set up right here. The people are displeased, and their response is to turn against God and turn against other people. And then Samuel is displeased, but rather than responding harshly or hastily, Samuel seeks guidance from the Lord. And here's what the Lord tells Samuel. Do everything they say to you, for they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So in Israel's request for a king, we once again see that recurring theme in Scripture. God offers people a relationship as their king. The people reject God as their king. But through the kings of Israel, there's another recurring theme that we get to see. Whenever people turn away from the Lord, there's always a voice, be it a voice from a judge like Samuel or a prophet or a wise person or the scriptures, and it's a voice from God. God is calling people back into a relationship with him even as they reject him. We'll see that theme over and over again as we go through this sermon series together. And it's just a reminder of how gracious our God is. He calls us to himself after we fail, after we turn away from him, after we reject him. And so all through this chapter, Samuel does that. And here he says, look, the king that you guys are asking for, he's going to take your kids and he's going to run them into the ground. He's going to raise your taxes. He's going to rip away your best crops and your livestock and your land, and he's going to make you his slaves. And when that time comes to pass, you are going to beg for relief, but the Lord is not going to help you then. And here's how the people respond to God's warning through Samuel in verses 19 and 20. The people refuse to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. Now, it's easy to read this passage and think, that was foolish. After being reminded that God is your king and being reminded of all God has done and being informed of what's going to happen if you choose to follow a human king, how could you possibly say, even so, we still want a human king? As I thought about my own life and I thought about just our culture, we do that also, don't we? 
You know, as Christians, we know that God is king. We know he has rescued us and blessed us far, far more than we deserve. But how quickly we can forget these things and then put our trust in a person instead. At times, we may get caught up in conforming to the culture that's around us, be it a party culture or a performance-driven culture, and we forget that we're God's image bearers, and we forget that and then start to conform to the image of the world. Other times, we may seek to impress the people that are around us that we admire, so it might be a professor or a boss. Maybe it's someone who's a ministry leader. Maybe it's a man or a woman that you're attracted to. Whoever it is, we effectively crown them and become absorbed in trying to please them. Other times, we see the brokenness of the world around us, and we want to put our hope in a person. It could be a politician who promises reform. It could be an author or a podcast that offers some helpful perspective. It could be a preacher or a speaker that we listen to regularly. But one of the biggest reasons we forget that God is our king is because we buy this lie that functionally says, you are your king. In one sense, it's this lie that we want to believe because we don't like it when anyone else tries to sit on the throne of our life. And so if someone else says otherwise, we just try to block them out. But there's a subtle way that we also buy this lie that we're our own king. And I've been seeing this in my own life as well. A few years ago, I got diagnosed with this autoimmune disease called ulcerative colitis. And recently, I've been looking into diet and exercise and self-care routines that I can treat used to treat it. And honestly, it's actually been really helpful. Uh, the past six months, I've progressively felt better than I have in years. But as I look into these alternative opportunities for care, uh, I noticed a trend. Like every practitioner I visit and every product that I buy, in some way it's trying to convince me that if I just do what they say, I will not only avoid being sick, but I will optimize my body. And these supplements and practices are referred to as the wellness industry. And I didn't know much about the wellness industry. Uh, if you've heard of Deepak Chopra, he seems to be an expert in this, and he's a massive proponent of the wellness industry. And he explains it in a really revealing way that I found helpful. So I want to read this quote from you, for you from him. He says, a person can achieve perfect health, a condition that is free from disease, that never feels pain, that cannot age or die. Chopra offers something he calls quantum healing. And he concludes by saying, we are the eyes of the universe looking at itself. And I'll be honest, I have no idea what he meant when he said that. <laughs> so I Googled it, and after I Googled it, it seems like it's inferring we are far more powerful and far more in control than we think. In a sense, we are the king of our own life, and we can control our future if we can figure out our physical health. And maybe you hear that and you're like, that seems a little ridiculous, but people all around us are buying it. The Global Wellness Institute estimates that people spend over $3.7 trillion on wellness products, which is more than three times the amount we spend on global pharmaceutical products. Now, please hear me out. I'm not saying that diet, exercise, and wellness are bad. As mentioned, I'm actually contributing to some of that $3.7 trillion. But what I am wondering is, are we prioritizing physical health over spiritual health? 
Are we looking too much towards self-care rather than divine care? Are we buying all these products and running to so many other people or things before we run to our king? If so, then like Israel, we too will settle for lesser kings. God is our king, and if you are a Christian, he has rescued you, he has authority over your life, and he has blessed you far more than you deserve. And in this season, if we are putting hope in a person or a product, let this just be a gentle call to remember and trust who our true king is. Okay, let's get our eyes back to the text. God allows his people to reject him for a human king, and we meet this king in 1 Samuel 9. There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah of the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. So here we first meet Saul. And everything Saul represents is exactly what the people of Israel wanted in a leader. He comes from a background of great wealth and influence. He's not only tall, but he's the tallest person in the nation. He's not only handsome, but he's the best-looking person in the nation. Saul epitomizes what most people would want out of a leader. And so after the people meet Saul, they quickly inaugurate him as king. And from chapters 9 to chapter 12, Saul does some amazing things. He proves to be an influential leader. He rallies Israel to victory against other nations. And he even has moments that reveal humility in his heart. Saul was a complex character. And he had some strong moments as Israel's king. But as time goes on, we see many character flaws in Saul as well. His insecurities often lead him to hide from responsibilities And yet his pride leads him to build statues and monuments about himself. He disobeys the Lord several times, and when he does, he makes excuses for why he did so. And he's greedy. He hoards treasures for himself, and he makes rash decisions and oaths. And there's several passages we could look to about Saul's life that depict these flaws, but I just wanted to pick one And in 1 Samuel 15, it kind of highlights a few of the things that we just mentioned. So a little context before we get to 1 Samuel 15. Saul had been ordered by the Lord to destroy everything in the land of this rival nation. And Saul ends up going, seeing victory, but then keeping livestock and treasures and even the king of this other nation alive as a trophy for himself. And so here's what happens next. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what's all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear, Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. And so when Samuel calls Saul out for not obeying the Lord, here's what Saul says in return in verses 20 to 23. I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, which wasn't part of the mission uh, as an aside, but I destroyed everything else. 
Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then here's what Samuel says in response. What's more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness, as bad as worshiping idols. So because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And from that point on, Saul's pride and his insecurity slowly lead him down a path into madness. David enters the story and early on, Saul develops an intense jealousy towards him. He hunts David all around Israel and tries to kill him several times. And then at some point, Saul becomes paranoid. And he thinks the priests in Israel are all against him also. And there are 85 priests in Israel. He kills 84 of them. And then after that, towards the end of his life, he gets so paranoid that he asks a witch to conjure up Samuel's dead spirit so he can ask Samuel for advice. All of this leads to the end of 1 Samuel, where Saul dies a gruesome death in battle. At the end of Saul's life, it can be difficult to know what to make of his painful story. But there are at least two things we can draw out. The first is this. Saul's life is meant to be a warning to us, a warning to check our own character. It was sobering for me when I look back at the Bible in a year plan that took me over two years to do. Uh, I looked at the parts that I'd read on Saul, and there were so many moments that I'd underlined or written off to the side where I could relate intensely with, Paul, with Saul's pride and his insecurity. And that root for pride and insecurity, it's this deep inner sense that something is wrong with me. Like something is off, and when I'm prideful, I'm trying to cover up what's wrong with me. And when I'm insecure, it's buying into this lie like Lydia was talking about, that there's something wrong with me, and it defines me. And so Saul is meant to be a warning. Repent from pride, repent from insecurity, and look to our only true king. And the second takeaway from Saul is that every human leader... No matter how attractive or charismatic they are, they will definitely, inevitably disappoint us. We tend to put people on these pedestals, a teacher, a parent, a person in ministry, and when we do that, we set ourselves up to be let down because people are not perfect. And I say that not to be cynical. I say that because we all have this craving deep inside us for perfection. We all groan with creation for the day that the Lord is going to come back and he's going to set everything right. And so because of that, we look around us and we look to people around us and we want them to be perfect. We want them to fit whatever expectation we have. But rather than cynicism, let that push us to see that the people are imperfect and the perfection that we long for can only be seen in the Lord. You know, when I think about my daughter, Ariana, there's something within me that yearns to be the best dad in the world for her. And it saddens me because I know there will be many, many moments when I disappoint her, where I'm less than the father that she thought I was. 
but it also fills me with hope because one of my prayers as I start this new Bible in a year plan, I have no idea how long that's going to take me, but at some point, I'm going to finish that plan. And by God's grace, several years down the road, Ariana hopefully has her own relationship with the Lord. And on a momentous occasion, I would love to gift the Bible to her that I started reading today. And in the pages of that Bible, I'm praying that she sees the way her father is imperfect. And as she reads the prayers and the questions and the doubts and the insecurities that I have, she'll see my weakness even more. And all of that will hopefully help her see that her heavenly father is actually the one who's perfect. Her heavenly father is actually the one who deserves the throne of her life. And it's interesting when we look back at Saul because after Saul, many people were still looking for an earthly king to lead them. And many people thought David was going to be the one who did that. And they thought he would be the greatest king. But God tells David this in 2 Samuel 7. He tells David, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I'll raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I'll make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. And so people knew that after David, there would come an even greater king. So for generations, people waited for this coming king who would rule for eternity. The Old Testament ends expecting this king. And the New Testament begins with the arrival of this king. But when he came, people did not recognize him. Because the kingdom of this king was totally unlike anything they had expected. Rather than riding on, in on a chariot, he rode in on a donkey. Rather than taking from people, he came to give life to people. Rather than wearing a crown of jewels, he wore a crown of thorns. Jesus is the king that 2 Samuel 7 foreshadowed. But make no mistake, he is unlike any other king of this world. And on the night that our king was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, covenant poured out to take away this, your sins. Drink and do this in remembrance of me. For I won't drink of this cup or eat this bread until I drink it anew in my father's kingdom. And so today, today, we just want to do that. We're going to take communion together as a way to remember that our king has come. That through faith in him, we can have a restored relationship with God. And that we are once again called into the great mission of being his image bearers to all of creation. So as the band leads us through a few songs, come on up to one of the tables up front or in the back. Take some bread and juice, and if you need gluten-free, it's up front here to your right. And if you're not a believer, no pressure to take communion. But I'd like to encourage you to consider this. Who is sitting on the throne of your life right now? Who are you effectively trusting as your king? And if you're a Christian, would love for us to just take this time to remember that the king we serve is worthy of our entire life. We don't have to settle for lesser kings. Our king is unlike any other king 
this world can offer us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are wonderful, you are amazing, and you are so, so good to us. Thank you for being the king. We do not deserve you. Thank you for leading us, thank you for loving us, and thank you for calling us into the greatest mission we could be a part of, to get to be your image bearers to all of creation. Lord, when I look at Saul's life, I'm just convicted by how easily I could be led by insecurity and pride. And so I just confess that to you, Lord. And I ask that I wouldn't try to just muscle up and try to make myself better, but I would look to you, our ultimate king, and I would find grace in you and I would walk with you. And I pray that same prayer for our entire church, Lord. I pray that we would be men and women who don't try to deceive ourselves, that we can make ourselves okay but that we would look to you, run to you, find shelter in you, and walk with you in this relationship. I pray that you would speak to us in the coming weeks through this sermon series. And I pray that you would speak to us each day through our time with you in the word. We love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.